0: Welcome to Managed Care Cast, a podcast from the American Journal of Managed Care. One of the most common causes of liver disease in the United States is non alcoholic fatty liver disease, affecting between 30% and 40% of adults, according to the National Institute of Diabetes and Digestive and Kidney Diseases. It's a condition in which excess fat is stored in the liver a buildup that is not caused by heavy alcohol use. Despite how common non-alcoholic fatty liver disease is, there are no approved medications on the market. The only treatment currently available is lifestyle modification, such as weight loss, increased physical activity, and dietary changes. However, that may change. Patients with type 2 diabetes and non-alcoholic fatty liver disease may be able to treat their liver disease with empagliflozin. An SGLT2 inhibitor. Research has shown that between 50% and 70% of patients with type 2 diabetes also have non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And two new studies showed that empagliflozin reduces liver fat, which could lead to the drug being used as a first-line therapy for these patients. In addition, there are a number of drugs going through clinical trials, and given the number of people who are affected, A drug to treat non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, or its more extreme form, non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, could be the next big blockbuster drug. I'm Laura Jost, the managing editor of the American Journal of Managed Care. Later, I will speak with someone involved with patient advocacy around liver disease, but first, I'm joined by Dr. Julia Waticharrel, the director of the Non Alcoholic Fatty Liver Disease Program at the Columbia University Irving Medical Center. Dr. Waticharrel, thank you for joining me. Thank you so much for having me, Laura. So let's sort of start at the beginning. And if you could talk a little bit about what has driven the increase in incidence of non alcoholic fatty liver disease.
1: Sure, Laura. Um, I will probably take a step back just to make sure we get some definitions in line because the, the definitions of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and then a subtype of it called non-alcoholic steatohepatitis are really important. When we talk about incidence, um, we'll talk about the umbrella term first, uh, and that will be the non-alcoholic fatty liver disease group. Primarily the increase in, in what we're observing for non-alcoholic fatty liver disease parallels the, Um, what we're observing in obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, and cholesterol issues, dyslipidemia. As the incidence of those diseases rise, then we start to pick up the associated liver condition, which is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. The other thing that sort of is playing a role in terms of um, seeing more of it from a clinical standpoint is the means of detection. Um, As our imaging modalities are getting better, That's ultrasound, CAT scan, MRI, elastography, et cetera. As those um, technologies are improving, they're able to call fat on a scan with greater sensitivity than they had before. So the overall awareness, both among the medical community and the ability to see this in high-risk populations are sort of the underpinnings of why we're seeing some of the increases in incidence.
0: And how are patients who are at risk of developing non-alcoholic fatty liver disease being identified? And once they are, what are the treatment options that are currently available to them?
1: So, right now, we are not recommending widespread screening. This is an area of of interest for many people. Um, Because of those associated risk factors, the incidence of obesity and diabetes, et cetera, prevailing in primary care clinics might suggest that we need to screen people with greater uh, vigilance this is an area of uncertainty. We just don't know enough about the disease. It's relatively young. We don't know enough about its natural history, and we don't know enough about the best way to screen people for this type of disease. So, identifying an individual at risk is picking up an individual in one of those high-risk groups and then having a more detailed um, personal conversation with them in terms of their overall metabolic risk. For example. Um, it's not widespread recommendation that every obese person has an ultrasound to screen for this disease because we kind of don't know what to do with that. We should be engaging in weight loss counseling for that individual simply because of their obesity and simply because of their other metabolic risk. So to screen them for something that we may not, that we do not yet have a treatment for and that we may not know what the natural history of is still an area, sort of a gap in our knowledge. That said, I think in the community from the, the practice point of view, um, those of us that see a lot of a lot of patients with fatty liver disease and the general population at large really know that there's a, a coexistence between the prevalence of NASH, which is a non-alcoholic steatohepatitis That's the more concerning variety of this type of liver disease. That's the one that typically progresses in terms of advanced liver disease, eventual development of cirrhosis, etc. We know that that tends to be more common in individuals with diabetes, so the individuals that do have type 2 diabetes rise to attention for um, particular types of uh, other secondary investigations.
0: Can you go a little bit into the program that you're running at New York Presbyterian and Columbia University? What is the experience of patients who take part in it?
1: So the program is based on the disease. It's It's a multidisciplinary way of treating a very general disease. What we do is take any patient with any stage of disease, and that includes people that might be uh progressed to the point of cirrhosis with what we call decompensation, meaning needing a liver transplant, um, all the way from people with non-alcoholic fatty liver disease without any scar tissue. So there's a wide range of patients that we see, but we treat them um in multiple ways. And the, the primary way that that this disease should be treated hard to do, but it's the best way to treat this type of disease is lifestyle management. Um, And that includes a significant component of nutritional reform, caloric restriction, et cetera, uh, detailed nutrition recommendations. So we have a a registered dietitian that works with us. And then we also have pretty strong exercise recommendations and exercise prescriptions in terms of lifestyle management. I know that is typically something that you don't see more than 10% of your patients being successful. Our outcomes, we're formally reviewing them now, seem to suggest that there's something more motivating about chronic liver disease when it comes to long-term sustainability for weight loss, and I think we're in excess of that 10%. In addition to the lifestyle management, we have clinical trials that we offer our patients. So these are individuals with NASH that might have the inflammatory form with some scar tissue. We have multiple types of investigations that we're doing from a scientific standpoint as well in terms of the genetic risk factors that underlie this disease, especially in individuals that may not have any of those risk factors. And then we have um, treatment modalities where we refer to either partner programs for weight loss um, either medical or surgical. Um, transplant, um, if needed, those patients are seen both by me, my nurse practitioner, and then uh, multiple individuals that are part of our transplant program as well. So it's a multidisciplinary targeted approach to this disease process at every stage.
0: And you sort of alluded to this earlier when you were talking about uh, the primary treatment being lifestyle management. Have you been running into challenges with relying on a non pharmacological intervention to address this medical issue? How are you getting patients to actually engage with this lifestyle management when you said earlier 10% it's usually successful, and that's a pretty low number?
1: No, and it just fits along with behavior change, just like our – colleagues in obesity and lipids, et cetera, anything yoked to lifestyle management. So getting people to reform behavior sustainably is a challenge. And so we've adopted a certain type of counseling technique. Um, We do a lot of detailed counseling in terms of when uh, weight gain originally started. Um, I am not shy about involving behavioral therapists. Um, that are tailored for what the patient's actual needs are. Um, so the psycho, psychological and psychosocial components to metabolic disease are, are one of the strategies that we have. We also know that the healthcare system isn't great at, at doing weight loss. And so we partner a lot with um, in-neighborhood point of care for patients that are outside the healthcare system. Um, for example, um, structured weight loss programs like Weight Watchers, et cetera, where people are getting community-based weekly follow-up. It's that sort of weekly accountability that seems to be um, better uh, executing on the on the overall goal of weight loss. One of the things that we've also found very helpful that um, we just engaged in and, and didn't know the outcome of and we've been trying to study it as systematically as we can is the use of mobile technologies. So our dietitian as well as nurse Practitioner and I, all um, for patients that are technologically inclined. We have apps that we recommend. Um, some patients engage in biometric monitoring as well. And we've noticed variable uh, types of adherence and long-term benefit in terms of weight loss, everything from mindfulness-based um, eating strategies to long-term exercise um, adherence programs, uh, the early adopters were some of my younger patients, but this is—I think—I have patients well into their 60s and 70s that engage with technology as a self-monitoring system, and so that's something that we coach them on from every aspect of the multi- multi-disciplinary team.
0: Can you go into a little bit more detail to break it down into non-alcoholic fatty liver disease and non-alcoholic steatohepatitis?
1: If your audience is not too familiar with the disease, what I would say is if you think of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease as an umbrella-type term, and that affects somewhere between 25 to 35% of the Western population, we think, a subset of that, probably a quarter of that population, 25%, has this inflammatory phenotype that we call non-alcoholic fatty hepatitis. When counseling kids, I often say that's the angry form of fatty liver. That's the one that's thought to progress. Um, That's the one that typically will lead to scar tissue, and we think it progresses rather slowly, which means very good things in terms of opportunities for lifestyle management and weight loss. And just to be clear, that the type of weight loss or the amount of weight loss is not huge, 7 to 10%, um, before you start to see halting of liver disease and even reversal. So it's not that a person has to move from an an obese to an overweight category even. Um, Small changes have big effects. So without those changes in the natural history of the disease, based on what we know, um, many individuals will progress to developing advanced fibrosis or advanced scar tissue in the liver, namely cirrhosis. And then with cirrhosis, we worry about other types of outcomes, so the liver not working well or decompensation or liver-related cancer. Both of those entities are reasons that people would be referred for liver transplant.
0: And looking forward, what pharmacologic treatments are coming down the pipeline and being studied currently in trials? I think what I do um, is
1: talk about categories because there are so many. There's more than 100 clinical trials that are going on right now within the NASH space. But to categorize them in the way that I think about it is, NASH is a disease or a type of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease that's diagnosed by biopsy. Um, So with that biopsy information, the patient's metabolic information and their risk factors, uh, referring them for a type of medication is is somewhat that we, we try to do rather specifically. And so the big broad categories that I like to think about in terms of drug development are therapies that target fatty acid and glucose metabolism. So some of the things that typically people think of in the diabetic space or the lipid lowering space, um, cousins of those medications are being developed for NASH in particular. Another big category are those that target bile acid metabolism. Usually the liver makes bile as a response to nutrition um, coming, um, and that has an anti-inflammatory effect on what's going on in the liver. And so that's another treatment pathway that the drugs are being developed in. There's also ones that target inflammation specifically. Um, The way that liver cells look under the microscope with NASH suggests that they're uh, about to die or in some type of distress. And so there are drugs that are being developed for inflammation in particular and cell injury. And then the last category that I like to think about are scar tissue-related drugs. There are some drugs that are being developed specifically to break up scar tissue. That's the outcome that we care a lot about as liver doctors, but we typically treat the underlying disease that causes the scar tissue. These drugs are being developed for the scar tissue in and of itself. There are so many drugs um, that are in development. There's not one or two that I would strongly say that this pathway is better than another pathway because they are so early in testing at this point. We'll have to see how they, once approval sets in, which ones are, are best tolerated by patients and which ones are more efficacious.
0: So what kind of impact could a treatment, if it comes to market, have if it's effective Given the prevalence of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease, I'm thinking, is this going to be along the lines of the hepatitis C treatments that came out, or PCSK9 inhibitors for lowering cholesterol? Is it in that category of huge impact and a huge population? Uh,
1: Huge impact and huge population both would be yeses in my mind. Um, When we think about the parallel story with hepatitis C, I can't imagine these drugs being curative. Um, because these are metabolic conditions. So I would think of it being in the impact of something like an a anti-diabetic drug, um, something that's chronic, sustained, um, could potentially be something that started and then with successful weight loss, lifestyle change, and improvement may be withdrawn. I would think of them much more on the order of diabetic drugs or lipid-lowering drugs in terms of the chronicity of management. The population um, to be taking this is obviously quite large, given the numbers that I said earlier, about 25% of the population having NAPLs, but only a small subset of that, another quarter, um, having you know, biopsy-proven NASH. And the whole issue of whether or not biopsies will be required prior to starting the medication is a whole other area of uncertainty that we have. Obviously, it's not practical or feasible for, for
0: so many people. Great. Well, thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. president and CEO of the Global Liver Institute, and we'll be discussing non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, which is a severe subtype of non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. Donna, thank you for joining me. Thank you. To start, can you give me a little bit of background on non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, or NASH as it's known for short? Absolutely.
2: So the the first thing um, is represented in the the name of the disease itself. So often people think that all liver disease is driven by alcohol abuse or or substance abuse um, and. This really is, you know, an opportunity to, to spotlight that many forms of liver disease and this disease in particular is not driven um, by alcohol or drug abuse. So non-alcoholic stadiohepatitis is an advanced form um, of liver disease that occurs when um, the liver itself is more than um, 5% uh, infiltrated by Fat by weight. And so this causes inflammation, cell damage, which is called uh, fibrosis. And so you really have a state where the liver has been so um, assaulted by fat that it is unable to regenerate. It is unable to do the majority of functions that people depend on every day.
0: And how is the Global Liver Institute getting involved in NASH? And why did you actually feel it was important to get involved? So uh, the Global Liver Institute is
2: a uh, patient-driven, multi-stakeholder advocacy organization. So unpacking those three parts um, in patient-driven, and I am um, a liver patient myself. I'm 23 years post-liver transplant, and so I've I've personally experienced what end-stage liver disease looks like, and I'm firmly committed to making sure that fewer people um, end up that way. And so uh, we look by defining areas of need. And certainly, when we looked across um, the landscape in public health and in liver diseases as a whole, there was really no uh, driving force. There was really no uh, community that was creating a sense of urgency around addressing uh, fatty liver disease and NASH. And so we move to convene an expanded set of of stakeholders if you will around this issue our our colleagues in, in on the medical side and in, in hepatology were certainly aware of this condition and are doing great research and and, and work but, um, this is really an unknown area and certainly an unaddressed area in, uh, in endocrinology, in cardiovascular diseases, um, and those are uh, treating patient populations who are so at, highly at risk for this, um, for this disease that, um, that we felt really compelled to act. And so we launched the NASH Council last year um, in 2017, um, and we have been identifying and equipping patients who do have uh, fatty liver disease and NASH to be able to lend their voices and help us define um, the needs of this community. We've been creating relationships with medical societies, in um, endocrinology, cardiovascular health, and in primary care and obesity to create more education and awareness and activity around this. And then we have been, uh, you know, with those organizations, been developing and deploying an advocacy agenda um, across uh, these members and the, and the community. And so when we think about how the Global Liver Institute can really have impact, it is being a catalyst across these various um, organizations, from the Endocrine Society to the, uh, you know, American College of, of Physicians, and if we really think that, even for the 35 members that we have now, if every one of our members um, who you know, collectively reaches um, over 100,000 uh, different clinicians if they start including information about fatty liver disease and NASH, um, we really have uh, been able to transform clinicians' exposure to um, and their ability to appropriately screen and manage patients with this type of liver disease.
0: I'm kind of curious. Why do you think it has taken so long for there to be advocacy in the space of fatty liver disease? Um, Was there just more focus on alcohol-related causes to liver disease? I, I would think with it being so connected to obesity and the obesity rate has been rising in the United States that there would have been more attention before now? I think that there are several reasons why
2: there there hasn't been more attention to this date, one of which is that there is a lot of stigma about around liver disease. And so, many people who have different type of liver diseases are reluctant to to step up um, and to speak out about the need uh, for, for addressing these problems. And so, you know, that was Part of what I felt was my personal obligation, um, you know, having benefited from innovations in treatment and, you know, and great, um, you know, health care to be able to, you know, um, survive my my liver diseases, to be able to, to, to focus on this. I think that, you know, um, many liver patients are not diagnosed until... Very late stage in their diseases. That's certainly the case in Nash, um, and Nash um, is a is a great driver of liver cancer, which only has a twenty percent survival rate, um, and of uh, the need for liver transplant. Um, Soon it will be the number one cause of liver transplant, and so, you know, frankly, many patients and potential advocates just don't survive um, their, their uh, encounters with liver disease to be able to go on to start to speak about this and, and raise awareness. And so, um, you know, we're trying to, to correct for that.
0: And can you tell me a little bit about the goals of the Global NASH Policy Framework? Nash is a
2: global problem. It's estimated that, you know, one in four people around the world, um, and that same figure holds true in the United States, um, have some form of fatty liver disease or, or, or Nash. And so this really does need to be addressed as a global public health epidemic. And so we've attempted in our, in our policy framework, just as we've, um, work to set the agenda for, for patients, for clinicians, and researchers, what can policymakers do? And so, the first thing is really help understand the scope of the problem. Um, we certainly have, you know, some information about uh, the, the many millions of people who are affected, and uh, just in the U.S., the uh, you know, over $100 billion a year of direct medical costs, but we know that's only the tip of the iceberg. And so, you know, the WHO, um, which uh, measures um, and has sustainable development goals that are affected by uh, non-communicable diseases really doesn't, uh, you know, address NASH as part of that, and that can help address the, the the problem, the scope of the problem. The National Academy of Medicine, if they were to put out a, a study that would really give us a better basis from which to plan action, and then the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Um, can be organized in a better way to be able to do surveillance so that we really are, are accurately understanding the problem that we're trying to address. And then um the second point would be to um, policymakers can help us address the cases that we have now through better insurance coverage, making sure that coverage for pre existing conditions, of which NAFLD and Nash certainly qualify that um, the imaging uh, that is necessary for diagnosis is covered and whether it's nutritional counseling for counseling for the lifestyle development uh, lifestyle and uh, behavioral changes that we know can help reverse particularly the early stages of NAFLD and Nash or a more you know extreme um, solution in, in bariatric surgery which is proven to be effective for those candidates that qualify you know there are things that we can do now um, and then helping us plan for the future. So, um, a congressional caucus, uh, around liver health would be helpful to, you know, have champions who really understand this this problem. NIH uh, institutes, uh, you know, at the National Cancer Institute, um, NIDDK, NHLBI um, can address the research that they are already funding um, to make sure that it is inclusive of these challenges in NAFLD and NASH. And I do want to take time out to thank um, the two directors of NIDDK and NHLBI for putting together a joint letter about how important this problem was. but but they can be supported better. And finally, there's work that's being done in non-invasive testing um, at NIH uh, through an initiative called Nimble. And continued support for that is something also that policymakers can do. So so really thinking through the scope of the problem, how we can address what we have now, and how we can make plans for the future are the focus of our our policy uh, framework. And I think it just sets out a really clear pathway For all of the uh, new uh, advocates, if you will, that we are bringing into uh, a NAFLD and NASH community as people um, come to the understanding that this is an important issue and that they have a role to play. We want to make it very easy and clear for people to understand what those roles may be.
0: And what role would you say the first International NASH Day, which took place back in June, What role does that play in advocacy? What was the importance of holding it? What was being done on that day? International NASH
2: Day, um, I think, was a great first step um, because, um, you know, one of the mantras is, you know, what gets measured matters. But... Also, what matters gets measured. And, uh, liver disease hasn't mattered. Um, it hasn't been people on people's radar screens. They haven't understood how it's important. And so awareness is really job one. And that's what International National Awareness Day, um, was about. It was the first step in, um, having this nascent community come together, um, put together to, to media, to policymakers, to even uh, clinicians and patients as, as many community activities were, um, were, were generated or information on the website through interviews with, with various thought leaders that were put out, um, really sort of activating these communities around a common message that was developed for the first time to, um, you know, let the world know about NASH and why it should be taken seriously. So, you know, awareness is job one. And so this was a great first step to make that happen. And there's so much more that we can do. I think the important thing as we think about perhaps future uh, NASH awareness days is the, the importance of efforts that grow and strengthen um, a patient advocacy community and a multi-stakeholder advocacy community um, around NASH so um, the stimulus of grassroots um, efforts and the identification and engagement and support for people who are living with um, fatty liver disease and NASH uh, I think will be uh, the most important outcome um, of this and the the thing that will set the stage for, um, successful advocacy efforts to, to come and ultimately successful efforts to, um, you know, improve the lives of, of patients. I think before if you had a diagnosis of NASH, you thought you were all alone. Um, and sometimes even your own clinicians didn't understand what the condition was or know much about it. And so being able to knit together uh, for the first time a community of people affected and letting them know that there were researchers and clinicians and advocates that cared about them and cared about addressing this problem is really an exciting opportunity and something that the Global Liver Institute uh, and I personally really look forward to, to working with those patients moving forward on these efforts.
0: And when it comes to NASH, lifestyle and behavioral modification um, are really the main treatments at this point. So I know there are clinical trials going on. How is the Global Liver Institute involved with clinical trials studying NASH treatments? Yes, it is really astounding that for a disease that's so prevalent that there
2: is no cure, and there currently is no FDA or EMA approved um, treatment specifically indicated for NASH. And so, it's important to have that because there are well, you know, a reduction in in, in weight of more than 10% um, sustained over a period of time um, has been shown to be effective in reversing fibrosis, some of the inflammation and scarring, and uh, and the disease. For many people, that will not be enough. Um, they won't be able to achieve that or it simply will not be enough to reverse their disease and, and, and keep them alive or restore them to health. And so, um. The hundreds of clinical trials that are are being done right now in the United States and around the world are absolutely essential. And so, the Global Liver Institute has been helping support clinical trials and and really overall supporting um, a robust clinical research enterprise in liver diseases in in a, in a couple of ways you know, we have consulted on um, specific protocols to make them as patient-friendly as possible. Um, We have helped raise awareness of both the importance of clinical trials in general and what the clinical trial experience can look like uh, and, and connected patients to clinical trials. And we also have been you know, working in as part of the the leadership um, on on steering committees in uh, across a variety of initiatives in both observational and interventional trial programs to make sure that the the patient perspective um, is incorporated and uh, you know the most you know, innovative thinking is is present and that lessons learned you know from one. Group of of trialists is shared as quickly as possible with other clinical trials, so that at the end of the day, a number of 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 drugs of treatments are successful because this seems like the science is leading to um, the conclusion that um, it will take multiple uh, or, or therapies that are addressing multiple mechanisms. Um, the inflammatory factors, the fat accumulation, and the you know, fibrosis um and, and sort of cell damage and wound healing aspects of NASH uh, to be able to make sure that as many patients as possible will have an effective treatment. So it may not just be one silver bullet, so to speak, one treatment that will, you know, that will cure things or that will resolve things or be the solution, but it might be some combinations of different drugs. And so it's important for a diversity of patients to participate in trials, a number of patients to participate in trials, and for that, you know, patient perspective to be represented in, in how the trials are conceived and conducted, so that they can be successful.
0: Great. Well, those are all the questions I had. Was there anything else that you wanted to add? Well, I just wanted to say that you know I think that there are three things that can make the
2: most difference as we look forward to addressing NASH fully. And I think those three things are, one, encouraging risk factor-based screening. Um, We know that patients who have obesity, who have type 2 diabetes, um, these other aspects of metabolic syndrome really should be um, referred more frequently for screening for fatty liver disease and NASH. And whether that enables them to participate in a clinical trial or just gets them linked to appropriate care so that their de- disease is, is managed and they have an opportunity to, to reverse it, better implementation of risk factor-based screening would be the first thing. I think that would make a great difference. The second thing is incorporating um, NAFLD and NASH into current obesity and diabetes management programs um, and making them available then to those those patients who are screened and found to be have NAFLD have and NASH. I think it's a really easy fix sometimes because so many of the things that can be done to reduce obesity and diabetes are the same things that will reduce NASH, and so it can be as simple as just putting you know, a line in a lot of educational brochures and current management programs. And then the third thing that I think will make the most difference as we see things today is really to elevate or just place Nashville and Nash um, on the public health policy and 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 payer forecasting um, agendas. It it can't be the case that it stays under the radar or off of the the planning um, uh, purposes or undercounted when we look at um, at the impact of of major diseases. And I think that you know if we start to include it in, in these places and in these planning and, and forecasting, then we'll certainly be able to put together the appropriate plans to uh, to address it. So those three things, I think, would make an incredible difference for the field and for patients today. Great. Well, thank
0: you very much for your time today. Thank you, Laura. For more on non-alcoholic fatty liver disease or non-alcoholic steatohepatitis, Visit AJMC.com or see the show notes.